Hi, and welcome to the Hand in Hand Show, where caregivers and survivors have honest discussions about stroke. We are a part of Stroke Focus Podcasts. This is Cam, your host. We're welcoming Dr. Coralie English with us today. Um, She's a researcher, a very influential researcher of stroke, and uh, she's in Australia. So we're having some fun with our times here. But she has a very impressive history. She's the co-chair of Stroke Clinical Guidelines Development Working Group with the National Stroke Foundation. She has been, well, she still is, a Young Stroke Professionals Committee of the World Stroke Organization, the Steering Committee for Virtual International Stroke Trials, Rehabilitation, and on and on. So we're very pleased to have her. So, Coralie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure to get up early in the morning for, for this interview. <laughs> I know. I bet it was. Well, I guess my first question to you is, tell us a little bit about what you do and your, maybe in your research. Sure. So, my background is in physiotherapy. And I quickly realised after graduating that rehabilitation was what I loved. And I spent a long long time working in uh, stroke rehabilitation wards and found that very rewarding um, and clearly where my passion for, for physiotherapy lay. I found it very rewarding to be part of people's recovery and feel like I was part of helping them get back on their feet, both literally and figuratively, in terms of helping people get back to, to walking in independence as far as they could. But as soon as I started working, I started having more and more questions about how we can best help people after stroke to get up on their feet and and regain their independence as quickly as possible. And I got particularly interested in the idea of how much therapy we could provide to people because I still distinctly remember as a new graduate going to a rehab centre, having had a roster in the hospital where you had a list of patients and you often only had a few minutes with each patient and then going, thinking about going out to the rehab centre, thinking this will be different, I'll have so much more time to spend with, with my patients in the hospital and being shocked how little time was traditionally scheduled to spend with each individual person, thinking one session with a physio for half an hour, an hour a day, that, that's not enough. Um, and so that quickly sparked my interest in knowing, well, do we know how much is enough and, and is this the best way of providing physio? So that's how I started to get into research. And my first area of research really focused on how we provide physiotherapy services to people after stroke and rehab and, and can we do that better. And, it can, and, the, and once you get into research, the more questions you have that you try to answer, the more questions it brings up. And, and so it becomes this ever-increasing rabbit hole of interest and passion. <laughs> well, I can tell that this is your passion because I can hear it in your voice and what people won't no, is I see it in your face. This is just exciting to me, being a stroke survivor and still working with a physiologist to this day. But I can see this. I can see that you love this and that you want to help. And, you know, some people are just made to find out how things work more and, and what helps and different things. What steps in, involved in the research that you're doing now or that led up to what you're doing now? Um, the steps. It comes from a burning question. 
questioning the status quo. Why are we doing things the way we're currently doing them? Is there a better way of doing them? And what do we understand about why this treatment might work? So I guess my work has evolved over my career into a couple of streams. But if I start with that and following on from that early theme of what got me into research of trying to understand how much more we should be providing to people and how, how we could do that within the healthcare service. That started with that question and then led to reading about what we knew about things and hearing about new models of providing physio. Uh, and at that time, it was this idea of instead of having an individual session with a therapist to, to working in groups of stroke survivors and therefore being able to provide within existing staffing levels more therapy time. So yes, that led to this the concept of circuit class therapy that I went on, on to research and to set up new models and to test them. So the idea is then with a you have a research question and then you work out how can I test this question? How can I try and get to some sort of objective answer about what works? Because the thing with research and with evidence-based practice is when you're a clinician and you're working with somebody, you are trying to do your best. And so you will almost naturally believe that what you're doing is, is helping because otherwise you wouldn't be doing it, right? And so the challenge for all therapists is to reflect upon their practice and try and align it as much as possible with research evidence. There's always going to be a bit of a mismatch or, you know, we don't have all the answers. So therapists can't always rely just on the research evidence there. But we need to have as many objective ways of measuring what really works versus what we believe works so that we are otherwise we're not providing the best care we can to our clients. So I hope that answers your question to start with. And the first stream of research around group circuit class therapy continued and we did some trials and we've done some reviews now. One just recently published again in the Cochrane Collaboration, which is a repository of high quality trials about medical interventions. I then became more and more interested in the mechanisms behind our, how our therapies work and particularly around physical activity and sedentary behaviour. How do you pick subjects for your research? That's a really good question and it's something that is complex. So it's always a balance between trying to get the best scientific answer and the problem with scientific answers is you want to minimise the noise that you have in your data. So you want to try and be able to have a group of participants who are similar enough that they're likely to respond in the same way if there is going to be a treatment effect so you can detect that in a mathematical, statistical way. If you go down that path very, very strictly, then what you end up with is an answer that only applies to that very small subgroup of stroke survivors for example, people who can walk, who have no cognitive dysfunction, who have no language impairment um, and have somebody living with them at home that can help them with their exercises. Just one example. If you make it too tight, your answers are also limited. If you make it too broad to say, is this type of therapy or model of care beneficial for most people, it becomes really hard to unpack the answers from a statistical perspective. So it depends on, on your question and it depends on how you want to best manage that balance. And I've sort of done it both ways and there's limitations with both. So in our circuit class therapy work, when we wanted to know what the best model of care might be, we deliberately kept it broad because I wanted to know, should we be doing this model of care for most people who come in through the rehab doors, not just a, a very select group? 
but what that meant was we couldn't statistically show that it was that it was 100% beneficial on some very hard outcome measures. We certainly showed that it was very beneficial in, in increasing the amount of time you spent in therapy for the same cost. But when it came down to the hard numbers of uh, whether you could walk further, whether the quality of life was improved, whether arm function was improved, we couldn't show that difference. Whereas in some of my other work now, we're trying to keep it tighter to a more defined subgroup, but realising that our answers will be limited to that particular subgroup. Does that, that answer your question? I mean, there's other, questions, there's other sort of answers around how you look for volunteers for people to be participate, and that's a whole other issue at times as well. Well, it does answer my question. And, you know, I've been in several research studies here in Missouri and the St. Louis area where I am. For me, I, I understand what you're saying because I've been through the processes. One of the ones that um, was the most detailed was an arm-hand study with trying to get the use, you to use it better and, you know, uh, so it was, you know, picking up small things, but I went through a whole series of questions and, you know, I had a right-sided stroke. So originally my left side was affected, but they didn't uh, take me at first because it was my left leg and my right arm and they couldn't understand why that was and, and didn't think that they wanted my left arm to be the one. So one of the ther their therapists that did some of the stuff actually had seen me and she said, I think you need to look at her again. So I was very fortunate and ended up in this study. One of the things they did was I had to do 300 tasks, three different ones every week to see if it helped. And it did. I, it was really great. And I've been in a leg study through some other things. So for me, I know what people go through, but I also know that there's people who haven't done it before and they wouldn't understand the process or maybe why they didn't get into something. So when you do this, you get in and you have your group and you start all of this. At the end, how do you validate these results? So it depends on the design of the trial. I might jump ahead, if I may, to a question I know you were going to pose a bit later about what is an RCT, which is, or what is a randomised controlled trial, which is the design that is most often used in scientific research to try and answer whether one treatment is better than another. That is the gold standard in terms of trying to get the best scientific evidence for whether something, a treatment or an intervention, works or doesn't work. And what happens in that case is that when people are included in a trial, if they meet the inclusion criteria, as we were just discussing, if their arm is impaired enough but not too much and, you know, they meet all these other criteria, then what happens is that individual is randomised to usually one of two intervention groups in its most simple form. It literally means essentially flipping a coin. There are... And flipping a coin is... is an absolutely valid way to randomise people, but there are other, other methods as well. But it basically means you as an individual then have a one in two chance of either getting the intervention itself or being in some sort of comparison group that might be control therapy, might be usual care, might be a different intervention. The idea of that is trying to minimise bias in the research. So trying to minimise the influence of what the researcher believes will work 
remembering we're trying to get down as close as we can to that elusive concept of truth, which is a bit of a hard concept to really define, but we're trying to get down to what really does work, not just what we believe works. So we randomise people so, so that the researcher doesn't think, oh, Kim will do great with this intervention. We'll definitely put her in the intervention group. But Daniel, I don't reckon he's going to do the exercises, so we'll put him in the control group. Then you're clearly stacking your trial to prove something that, in fact, if people were randomised, might, might turn out to be not effective. So that's the first step, that you randomise people to the group and then you put them through the intervention and then you have your objective assessments of whatever outcome measure that you're using. It might be how fast you can walk, it might be tests of, of arm function that are timed tasks or, or some sort of standardised test. It might be brain scans to look at has the intervention influenced the brain pathways. It could be a range of things. But that's where, when we're talking about validity of results, the next thing comes in, in that the best trials have somebody doing that assessment who doesn't know what intervention that you got. So usually that means that if you're having, if it's an arm trial, like the one you mentioned, Kim, that I might have been running the trial, but I'll have a, a research staff member come and do the assessments of your arm function who doesn't know whether you got the intervention or the control or the other intervention. So that again, that bias doesn't come in. Because even with our standard tests, unconsciously, consciously, it's, you want to make sure that you're not influencing those results. And then you do your statistical fancy mathematical comparisons. So that's how you validate results within a trial. But beyond that, one trial is one thing. Beyond that, it's about trying to replicate those, those results in different trials or compare your results to other trials that are similar. Um, and then at the next level, trying to pull together all of the studies in a similar area and combine their results together. Uh, and that's something like the Cochrane reviews and things like you mentioned before, the VISTA collaboration that I'm involved with, where we're trying to get as much information out as we can by combining other pieces of research. Because research is hard, research is expensive, it takes a lot of support of stroke survivors and volunteers. It's a lot that it's a it's a burden on everybody to do. It's a very important burden, but a burden nonetheless. So that the more we can make sure we're getting the best value and pulling together our collective energies to get to the cl closer and closer to that elusive truth of what really works, uh, then, then the better we can, we can validate our results. What's the best part and maybe the most challenging part of your life as a researcher? Oh, best and most challenging. The best is working with great people um, and feeling like I'm, I'm working towards answers that will um, benefit stroke survivors. The frustrating part about that is it's always slow. The, the more you do research, you start with a really big question and then you realise you're probably only going to be able to answer this much in this trial and this much in the next trial and, and then that spins off other questions. So the frustrating part is not getting to the, great, the big answers quickly. Um, and in stroke recovery, we're still waiting for a big transformational knowledge shift in what we know. We're finding out more and more, but in the early, we've, we've had great transformational change in acute care after stroke with the clot busting medications, with the clot retrieval medications, and some of that early care with knowing that stroke units are so important where we've been able to prove that we can save lives, that we can reduce disability significantly. And we're making really good gains and understanding more and more in, in the stroke rehab and recovery space, but we haven't yet 
really found that one treatment or that breakthrough that really makes a really, really big difference to people's lives. And, and, and that's a little bit frustrating at times because when you have trials that uh, are negative or show that the intervention wasn't any more effective than another intervention or that the benefits were very, very small, that becomes frustrating in a way. But the exciting thing that I love about it is I love working with other researchers and getting other ideas and working in big collaborations nationally and internationally. So I'm, I'm kind of used to doing these, these sort of Zoom meetings at all odd hours of the day to, to connect with international researchers as well, which I think is important. And I think we are. Um, I was part of a, a, a um, big roundtable discussion in Philadelphia in the US last year with stroke recovery researchers who are really trying to tackle some of these big issues and saying, how can we really give some uplift and push the field forward more quickly? And coming out of that was a great sense of energy and excitement around the world that, yes, we can see all the problems. And the group very consciously said, let's, not, let's just not go over all the issues. Let's think about what do we need to do to move forward? And so there's greater understanding and international consensus about how we need to do our trials better, how we need to uh, make sure our trials are um, similar enough in our methods and our measurements so that we can make best use of pulling them together later, how we need to have better ways of understanding why our treatments might or might not work so that we can start to get closer to this breakthrough that can really make a much bigger difference to people after stroke and their recovery. So I guess the passion keeps me going. The challenge is there's always too many exciting things to work on and I find it very hard to decide what, what I hate saying no to things that are exciting, but there's only so many hours in a day and I have a family that I like to see sometimes as well. <laughs> so keeping, keeping that balance and finding enough hours to do all the things that I love to do, that's the challenge. That's, you know, I, you, you're just exciting to talk to. That's all I have to say there. So you're working on a couple of different things right now. One I know has to deal with a sedentary lifestyle. Let's start with sedentary lifestyle because we know even in people who have not had a stroke that you can't be sedentary, that you can't just sit around. And I know that that is something that I preach in all my stroke support groups that I do and, and on my Facebook pages and different things like that. I say, these days, you don't just go home because you've had a stroke. You keep moving. You keep going. You find different therapies. You, you know, just get up if you can and walk. Or if you're watching TV and you can't walk, just move somehow. Yeah. But I don't know if that's exactly what your study is. But tell us about it. Kim, you're spot on. That's exactly what my study is about, in fact. So we've known for a long time... For, for everybody and, and stroke in research, that exercise and getting out and going for a really brisk walk or getting on a bike or going to the gym is really, really beneficial. But that is so, so hard for anybody with any sort of disability after stroke or mobility issue. And most healthy, able-bodied people don't meet the guidelines that we're meant to do for, for exercise. So we should absolutely be encouraging people when they can to do that level of huffing and puffing exercise, the sort of exercise that makes you a bit sweaty and, and, and gets your heart rate up. <laughs> that is certainly the most potent drug, right, in terms of 
improving your recovery and improving your um, risk factor for all sorts of other diseases. But I became very fascinated in the story around sedentary behaviour and just sitting time that was coming out in the research in the media. Um, really, it only started coming out probably five or six years ago that we started to understand this for, for everybody. And there's been headlines that many people might have seen, you know, sitting is a new smoking and sitting will kill you and, you know, all this sort of uh, sensationalised headlines. But that comes from our understanding now that, that regardless of the huffing and puffing you do, sitting for long periods every day also increases your risk of various diseases and, and, and particular cardiovascular disease and has been linked to risk of stroke as well. But we've, and there's been in, in population, so, so that got my interest in thinking, well, if you can't get up and, and do, if because of mobility issues or fatigue or mood issues as well, for any range of reasons, if it's hard for you to do that really vigorous exercise, often people then do nothing because there's, there's nothing else to do. But if, if, we, if we could understand that those little bits of exercise and, or just getting up off the couch in the ad breaks or just doing a bit of a movement around the house as opposed to sitting all morning, if we knew that that was going to really help somebody, then, I mean, I think we should be encouraging people to do that anyway, but does it really make a difference to people's health and well-being after stroke? So that's the area of research I'm focused on at the moment. And, and I, can, I can give you a sneak peek of some of our results because we did that, that um, it's probably a little bit naughty, but that's fine because it hasn't been peer reviewed yet. It hasn't gone out to a journal, but <laughs> um, I'm just too excited about it. So I'll tell you a little bit about it anyway. So this was one of the very, the, the more controlled trials that we did. So it was a bit more artificial for, than real world, but essentially we had a group of stroke survivors and we asked them to come into our research lab three times. And they did these three experimental days in, in random order. On one of the days, we asked them to come in in the morning and sit all day in a relatively comfortable chair, but they weren't allowed to get up and move except to go to the toilet until about 4.30 in the afternoon. And we took regular blood, um, blood tests and we took regular blood pressure measures and a whole range of other things. On the, uh, the next day, or, the, or another day, they came in in the morning, but every half an hour, they stood up and did some simple standing exercises, some toe raises. See, I'm, I'm at a standing desk. I like to live <laughs> my preach, by the way. So, you know, they did some, um, you can't see, that's right, your listeners won't be able to see. But they do some calf raises, some marching on the spot, some little mini squats, just in a, not, not to try and get a sweat up, just in a very easy pace. And um, they did that every half an hour for three minutes across that day. And then the third condition, every half an hour, they got up and did a gentle walk at their own pace for three minutes and then came back and sat, sat down. What we found out of that trial, and we're just writing up the results now, was that the, the, compared to sitting all day, getting up and moving regularly significantly reduced people's blood pressure across the day. So there's a suggestion that then getting up and moving more frequently is not only good for your well-being generally, and, and we, from all our other studies, we're fairly confident that it will reduce your risk of stroke, but we can say that in individual level, it will also reduce your blood pressure in the day. And we know that blood, and, and all these people were on blood pressure medications because most people who've had a stroke, high blood pressure is one of the high risk factors for stroke, 
So we had a, quite a significant effect on, on, on blood pressure. So that's an exciting result that we're now trying to explore further because the idea that you have to get up every half an hour on the half an hour and do exactly three minutes of this exercise, that's not something that is feasible in people's lives, right? So we've, proved, we've sort of got a proof of concept that getting up frequently is going to be beneficial. Now we need to work out well, just how much do you need to do in everyday life to make that worthwhile. That's exciting. Before you started telling us about it, we know a sedentary lifestyle is not good on any surface. I'm glad I can go to the stroke support group and say, look, I talked to somebody and even just a little bit, yeah. you know, every hour, every half hour, you yeah. know, just don't sit around. Yeah. I, th this is exciting. The, the other, I have another student who's working, looking at um, again, more at that huffing and puffing end of the spectrum of exercise. But again, how little do you need to do? So our, our international guidelines all say people should be doing at least half an hour at a time, most days of the week, which is really hard to achieve. But we're testing out smaller doses and seeing if maybe 10 minutes three times a week might be enough to improve fitness and improve health. If you know you have to achieve this mountain, you often don't bother even starting climbing the mountain, right? But if you know that you only need to take a couple of steps up that mountain to have benefit, then it might be something that's achievable that can have some health benefits. Right. And as a stroke survivor myself, I know that I can't do the mountain. I may never be able to do the mountain, but I know that I have taken small steps to be able to do things, whether it's, you know, I, I mean, I've tried all different things, some yoga, some Tai Chi, uh, some uh, uh, other things, but I can't do them every day. I mean, some people go every day and can do these. I, I physically, uh, brain fatigued, whatever you want to say, I can't do it every day. Mm -hmm. But I do try to make sure that I do not sit on the couch every day, that, you know, I keep moving somehow, whether it's even doing housework or, or you know, sweeping, vacuuming, doing laundry, whatever, that I keep moving. And that's just the whole point, I think, of what, you're saying is, you know, even if you can't do huge things, just make sure that you don't just sit around and this will help you. Yeah. So that's one of the things that you're working with. What's another one? So, so they're probably the two um, main things at this point in time where we're doing some in working with international researchers to explore that sitting time behaviours a little more as well, um, and we've pulled together a whole lot of data from, from a whole lot of studies around the world to try and understand what are some of the factors that influence why people sitting for so long, all, all at a very objective level as opposed to actually talking to people at this point. But what, what I'd like to do is to... Um, explore that a little further with some more qualitative interviews with people as well. But, I, but I'm, having said that, I'm, I'm aware of groups doing that in the Netherlands and I'm also part of a large group in the UK who are about to start a really large uh, grant uh, program of research to look into developing interventions to help people be less sedentary after stroke and that will involve um, a lot of these qualitative interviews as well. So it's exciting to be part of international efforts to address these, these issues. 
Um, we're also looking at particularly exercise, and when I say we, the, our broader group and, and researchers working with me are looking at exercise as a prevention for stroke as well, for, particularly for people who've had a TIA or that mini stroke that some people have um, prior to a big, a big stroke. We're developing up models of care and interventions primarily around physical activity to try and minimise these people's risk of going on and having a stroke as well. Um, yeah, so I think there that probably covers the main the main themes. Okay, so I was looking back through things that you were uh, working on, and this steering committee was virtual international stroke trials. Yep. Is what is that? Is that like virtually? seeing people online like we're doing here or no no, no that so that one is um what we love to do in research uh and stroke research in particular we love to have acronyms we love to call our trials these names that we can just roll off the tongue and sometimes that means what we call something doesn't necessarily exactly fit what it is so that's how i think vista came about but but what it what it is is a way in which we can pull information from a whole lot of trials. So VISTA stands for Virtual International Stroke Trial Association, I think. Um, and in the rehab part of that, what that means is that researchers who have done rehab trials are asked to provide, when they've finished writing up their papers, provide their data to this group. And so then this group is able to build a bigger and bigger data set from different data from stroke survivors from around the world and outcomes of different trials to try and get more information. You can often get more information when you've got big data sets than you can with small trials. So that, that's what that organisation does. And the virtual part of it, I guess, is that we, we're working around the world together. Okay. Um, but one of the things that have, that's come out of that for me is... Uh, they, they do a whole lot of um, asking questions of the data set and trying to find out different answers. But one of the things I've been most closely involved in is we, we looked at all the different ways people have measured essentially the same thing in research trials. So, for example, with arm function, what are all the different tests? Researchers are interested in improving arm function. What are all the different tests that they've used to say whether or not someone's arm has improved? And there is a ridiculous amount. And everyone uses a different outcome measure. And then a lot of researchers go, yeah, I don't like that one or that one, so I'll make up another new one. So in the, in the trials that we had in the, at that time in the database, we had way more outcome measures than trials. And across those different trials, there are very few outcome measures in common. And we've shown, like, that, that, that problem is, is so big and it's been noticed by everybody. And that's one of the big things that that roundtable that I mentioned earlier is really trying to tackle, is trying to say, hey, no outcome measure is perfect, but unless we start all agreeing to use the same ones, it's going to really limit what we can, what, what we can answer out of our research, really limits the, being able to com combine two research projects and get a bigger answer out of two little ones. So that, that's, you know, as you can tell, I have lots of soapboxes, but that's one, of, that's one of my soapboxes for researchers. We've got to come together internationally and use the same measures so that we can better understand our, our, our data. So that's right. Where I, I think that's true in anything 
with research, and I don't know how other research is is actually done, uh, and if they use any of the same things there either. But it seems to me that everyone should use kind of the same type of guidelines or or uh, something so that everybody can take the data and use it with whatever they're doing or, or something, which I think is what you're saying here is everybody's like all over the place and you need more, I don't know, control. Well, no, not, no not, not control, but more cohesion. More okay. That's, yeah. That's a better word then. Okay. So I want to go back to one of the things that, um, I had seen. So working with uh, a group or one-on-one -on -one, as a physiologist, you found, have you found that working with a group at one time is better for the group as a whole or uh, is one-on-one -on -one better? Or maybe different circumstances require different yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's a really good question, and it, it's not a simple. There's never a simple answer, <laughs> but but on some level there is. So our big Cochrane review that we just um, had released a few weeks ago shows, from an evidence perspective, that providing mobility. So this is about mobility training primarily, not upper limb training, but it's about therapy that's aimed at improving someone's walking or their standing balance. And that, that review showed categorically that this model of therapy works to improve somebody's walking ability. And it, it, most of the research has been done with people later after stroke. And most of the time it's been compared to um, either groups that do more stretching exercises or some sort of intervention that's not particularly targeted walking or, or, or no intervention. Um, and, and in that situation, categorically, we're working in a group, practicing different walking and standing tasks um, for, for a reasonable amount of time each day will improve your walking in this model of care. When it comes down to comparing it to one-on-one -on -one therapy, it, it, it is effective, it certainly definitely is later after stroke, more effective than one-on-one, -on -one, usually because you can provide more time that way. So people get more chance to practice their walking and standing when you've got a, great, when you've got a group. When it comes to earlier after stroke, there's less research and, and my big trial was one of the only ones early after stroke. We didn't show a big difference between the one-on-one -on -one therapy and the circuit class therapy. We showed a big difference in how much time people were with a therapist, but we didn't show it, every, and everybody improved in their walking over time because there's a certain element of natural recovery that happens after stroke as well. But we didn't show that circuit class therapy was a whole lot better in terms of how well people could walk by, the time, by four weeks after their stroke. But when we looked into why that was the case, when we, 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 managed, we videoed a whole lot of our therapy sessions so that we could really examine almost minute by minute what was happening in the therapy sessions. And what we discovered was that in the, in the group therapy sessions, people were still not practicing walking any more than they were in the individual sessions. 
So we could provide a whole lot more time with a therapist, but what we missed in that trial, um, we, we, we deliberately didn't control and put a whole lot of effort into all the different therapists saying you must do, you must do it exactly this way. We gave very broad guidelines. And what happened then is the stroke survivors in those circuit classes compared to the times, if, if they were with a therapist for half an hour or they were one-on-one -on -one, or they were in a group for an hour and a half with five other stroke survivors and a therapist, the time they spent practising walking was the same. So it, it, it meant that the model of care, just changing the model of care wasn't enough to get more walking practice. And we certainly know that the biggest driver for recovery in whatever you're looking at is, is practice time. You've got to find ways to increase that practice time. And providing therapy in a group can give you the framework for that. It can absolutely give you the ability to increase practice time much more than it can if you have one session with a physio and then in your, you're in your room or on the ward for the rest of the day. But until we find better ways to run those classes and therapists get, that get more confident and innovative in how they can get their stroke survivors in their group working harder in those sessions, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make a big difference for that walking ability. I really believe, and I don't have good hard data for this, but anecdotally, because I've done a lot of these classes and been the therapist delivering the therapy a lot, I really believe that for most people, the benefit of working in a group is big and that they enjoy that social interaction, that peer support and the camaraderie that comes. I've got lots of little stories about groups of stroke survivors that form really strong friendships through those therapy groups that continued uh, and it allows that greater input but we don't have the hard data to, to show that. And of course, there's going to be some people that, that, that who don't like that, who really, because we're all individuals, right? Some people don't like working in a group with other people. Yeah. But, but the, other, the other quick point I want to make there as well, because I think it's really important, is that working in a group doesn't mean that you don't get one-on-one -on -one time with a therapist. So if I'm running a class with a group of stroke survivors and Kim and Daniel, you're two of the people in my class, I will spend some time with Kim one-on-one -on -one, and there might be some things she needs to practice that needs someone there so she doesn't fall. And I would be spending some of that time with you, but I'd then also find time when I need to go and spend time with Daniel working on something that you've got something challenging and meaningful to work on as an exercise while I'm three steps away working with Daniel. Okay. So it's, it doesn't mean not individual. Yes. I know for me that a group would be a great thing because I'm very social. And, and I also need that encouragement. And yes, a therapist gives you encouragement. But as a group, you're working with people who are like you. And, and I think that I, I think this is very true that, that that's a great thing. I think a group would help a lot of people. Um, yeah, sorry, I get so excited. But, but the other interesting thing about that as well from a scientific point of view, Kim, is that if you're relearning a motor task, if you're relearning how to move in a certain way, we know that you watching, even if you're not paying attention to it, you watching somebody else trying to relearn a similar movement helps you. So it doesn't, right. help, it doesn't help you to watch me without a walking disability walk around the room. Mm -hmm. but it helps you to watch somebody else practice their walking when they're struggling. Mm -hmm. And that's going to enhance how well you learn how to walk. So that's the other benefit of working in a group. Yeah, well, you know, and that's very true because I get mad <laughs> when I first 
uh, was doing outpatient therapy because the therapist would get up and, and show me exactly how to do something. I'm like, well, yeah, that's easy for you to do. You know? <laughs> but I'd want to see somebody like me doing Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so one of my last questions to you is what are the, the what is the biggest challenge in stroke research and we may somewhere have gone through this but specifically you know for Spec you specifically categorically bottom line money research money mm -hmm. research money to run the trials to get the answers it's getting harder and harder to get funding to run trials and what we do is have to think about, so I, I, I'm working up to writing a big grant for, for, for the next trials that I want to do. And what I have to think about is not just what I think the most important question is to answer, but what is most likely to get funded. Because funding bodies don't always respond to, this is really what we need to know next. The process of being able to get the money to run the trials to answer the question is the, one of the biggest challenges. Yes, and I hadn't quite thought about that. But working in the medical field, I should have known that this is a huge problem in, in trying to get the funding or the particular type of things that might get funded. No, I'm, I'm was really pleased to speak with you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I look forward to, to hearing it online. One of the things I think I need to do better, and I take full responsibility for this, but also all of our stroke research um, community needs to do better, is engaging with stroke survivors about, about what the important questions are and how to best do our research to, to, to benefit the people that we are trying to benefit. And sometimes we get too caught up in our offices and our research think and our scientific brains and can easily head down pathways that are perhaps less relevant to the people that we're trying to benefit. So I think we need to find better ways of engaging with communities like yourselves, both at this level, but also at the next level of saying, hey, here's my research idea, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Or not, so not just, would you like to be a participant, but can you help us design better research that's gonna benefit stroke survivors? You know, I guess I go back to 20 years ago, there probably wasn't much research. 15 years ago, there might've been a little bit, Ten years ago, there's it was really getting hotter, and and now it's you know all these the schools are doing uh, things and and uh, different hospitals and uh, there's all sorts of stuff coming out, and um, I I just love seeing that we're not told anymore to go home and and just sit there. <laughs> so um, at this point. Thank you so much, and maybe you can come back and talk to us again, or maybe, you know, we can set something up so we can do a chat with maybe some other stroke survivors. You can come up with something that maybe you want to talk to us about or something, um, but we'd love to have you back another time. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you, so thank you so much for your time because I know it's very valuable, and this has been a whole hour, and you've had to probably get into work a little early. and. Um, but my, thank my you. Good, good. So um, this is Cam. Remember uh, to listen to all the Hand in Hand shows, um, part of Stroke Focus. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Hand in Hand show. We hope you enjoyed it. 
If you would like to keep the discussion going, please join Stroke Focus, the social media website dedicated to stroke survivors and caregivers. The website address is https colon backslash backslash www.strokefocus.net. Stroke Focus is S-T-R-O-K-E-F-O-C-U-S. Stroke Focus is a part of Wohala, which in Mandarin means I have survived. If you wish to be a part of the show or would like to be interviewed as part of the show, please contact us at contact at strokefocus.net.